Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So coming up then, big week ahead, the Federal Reserve's annual policy symposium kicking off this Friday in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, with Fed Chairman Jay Powell set to deliver the speech of the week. Joining us to discuss is Thanos Van Vakidis, head of G10 FX strategy at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, and he joins us out of London. Good morning to you, Thanos. Good morning. For the Federal Reserve then and Chair Jay Powell's speech, what are you looking out for? What's important? Well, uh, the Fed has been uh, normalizing policies, has been hiking this year. The message has been consistent uh, from uh, uh, Powell. So from this point of view, I think uh, what will come out this week will be consistent with this normalization. Uh, but we will be looking for a more color, how far the Fed can go, uh, how the balance, the good data in the U.S. we are seeing with global risks and trade uh, tensions, and also about the side effects of their policy normalization and the tightening cycle uh, on uh, the rest of the world, particularly on emerging uh, markets. How, th- how they balance all these risks in order to have a better understanding of their policy reaction function will be important. So, Thanos, I was reading through uh, some of your recent research, and I was struck by the idea that you saw little further upside uh, left for the euro-US dollar cross, and yet you also think that the dollar could strengthen more. So where is the dollar going to strengthen more if it's not against the euro? I mean, in the short term, we do see the dollar appreciating further, uh, even with respect to the euro. Our projection for September is 112, uh, but we're not far from this uh, level. Uh, and uh, we have already seen a strong dollar rally uh, since uh, mid-April. Uh, uh, the data are still supportive of the dollar, and uh, at the end of the day, the Fed is still hiking. Uh, looking, however, more beyond the next uh, few weeks, uh, we believe that, uh, and looking particularly into next year, we believe that we're going to see uh, a gradual weakening of the dollar, including with respect to the euro. Uh, the impact of the U.S. fiscal stimulus is likely to start weakening sometime uh, next year. Uh, the ECB will stop QE and they will start hiking at some point next year before or after the summer. The market also is long, the dollar at this stage. is not stretched, but is long. And the dollar is overvalued by about 10%. Uh, so from this point of view, uh, we are waiting for one more leg higher to the dollar and we'll be looking for an opportunity to buy the euro dollar deep. Thanos, when you say the US dollar is overpriced by 10%, what does that mean? How do you make that calculation? I mean, you can use a number of uh, models. Uh, usually, we just use an econometric model in which we look at different determinants of exchange rates, such as the current account, uh, balance, uh, uh, rate differentials, uh, terms of trade, and we look based on historical uh, evidence to what extent these variables justify the level of the dollar. Or you can just use a much simpler approach. You can just look at the deviation of the trade-weighted dollar from historical average. No matter what you lose, you come up with close to these estimates. For example, for Euro-Dollar, the long-term equilibrium is somewhere between 120 and 125. Again, we're not that far from this level, but this is where we'll expect the Euro-Dollar to converge in the medium-term to long-term. So, Thanos, I want to take a step back here because really the drama this year has not been in the euro dollar cross. It has been in emerging markets and what the strengthening dollar has done to developing worlds. And I want to get your perspective on how you viewed what we've seen so far. I mean, we've seen the Turkish lira fall out of bed, certainly the Argentinian peso. 
But going forward, do you expect more rough spots like this, more sort of uh, sort of air holes with emerging market currencies falling through them? Or do you think that we're kind of going to reach a, a more stable point there? I mean, you're absolutely right. To a large extent, this year has been about emerging markets. We started the year with the market being long, a very stretched uh, position. The trade tensions, uh, the Fed hikes, uh, all have been uh, uh, affecting emerging markets uh, negatively. And we also had uh, uh, local uh, risks in different uh, regions, in different emerging markets, uh, Argentina, more recently Turkey. So all these factors have affected. Looking forward, I think one will have to be more selective uh, position has definitely adjusted, is clean. The market is not short emerging markets, but definitely is not long uh, anymore. One will still have to be careful on cases like uh, as Turkey, where things could become worse before getting better. But I think beyond that, assuming that we are not going uh, to a full-blown trade war, emerging markets could offer opportunities in the months ahead. They are definitely at very attractive valuation. Wait, wait. And in some cases, the data has been good. Hold on one second. Are there specific emerging markets that look really good and, and like opportunities here? For instance, Korea is an interesting case, assuming we don't get a trade war between uh, China and, uh, uh, and the U.S. Uh, Mexico is another case uh, where uh, we are quite optimistic on having an NAFTA deal uh, in, in, in the months ahead before the end of, 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 of the year. So again, to a large extent, the emerging market uh, trade is just waiting for more clarity on the trade tensions. If the worst is avoided, then we can see uh, emerging markets rallying. Thanos van Bakidis, Great Account Champion, joining us from London, the head of G10 FX Strategy and Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. One thing that we are going to be watching this week, other than going back to school for a select group of kids, uh, will be that uh, Jackson Hole Symposium, where we're going to hear from central bankers around the world. But most importantly, probably for uh, most people watching, we're going to be hearing from Jay Powell, the head of the Fed. Joining us now, Tim Quinlan, Wells Fargo Securities Senior Economist, to talk about this. And uh, Tim, what's your take? What are you expecting to hear today? Or not today, Friday. I guess I'm trying to jump ahead because it's... Yeah, uh, I guess, you know, what we're trying to see here is, um, you know, broad outlook for the Fed and, and no, um, you know, influence from any perceived political pressure in one way or another. I mean, the um, I expect Powell to reaffirm that they're looking at um, an objective to maintain full and uh, full employment and um, price stability, and, and they're more or less on track with both of those objectives at this point. Is there any chance that it's going to be really exciting and that he could pull a, a Ben Bernanke uh, back ahead of the taper tantrum in 2013? Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't just then either. I mean, it, it was sort of like the uh, this was Bernanke's big stage to announce major inflection points in Fed policy, and um, it became sort of the uh, you know Woodstock for central bankers to some extent. But um, I don't think that you're going to get any of those kind of fireworks this week. I expect um, Powell to just sort of stay on script and and continue the forward guidance that they've been maintaining throughout the the last couple of years. Tim, there are some investors out there that think we might be approaching an inflection point. In monetary policy, not over rates, but perhaps with the balance sheet. How do you anticipate the balance sheet policy is going to evolve over the coming months, coming quarters? I think that's really going to be a tricky question for the Fed, because when I think about that, there's there's two major things that can influence longer term rates. One is, um, you know, we're going to be running much bigger budget deficits, over a trillion dollars by 2020. That means Treasury is going to have a lot of new issuance, which is going to put a lot of 
supply out there. Now you've got the Fed not only not soaking up that new supply, but potentially allowing things to mature and roll off their balance sheet. So, you know, to the extent that that happens and the influence that that could have on the, the shape of the curve, the Fed's going to have to be, you know, pretty pretty deliberate and careful about, you know, how it allows this stuff to wind off. But I think maybe the interesting thing to say in that context is if you think back to, you know, maybe where we were in prior cycles with the, um, the Greenspan conundrum where you've got this problem where the Fed can't raise rates again without taking short-term rates above longer-term rates, to an extent, the size of the balance sheet it gives them um, a little bit of flexibility in that regard and yeah. allowing them to shape the curve a little further out. So, Tim, I want to follow on with that, which is what is the outstanding amount of securities on the Fed's balance sheet when they're done with this runoff? I mean, I'm looking right now at a, at a balance sheet that's $4.2 trillion. I'm wondering, are we going back down to $2 trillion? Three and a half. Yeah, so, so pre-crisis, we were like um, $895 billion, which seems almost <laughs> laughable now. There's, there's no way we go back to normal. Um, you know, I, I, you know two, two is probably a reasonable starting point. I mean, they've said they're going to, you know, the, kind of the terminal rate for Fed funds in this cycle will be at around 3%. So, um, you know, once they've more or less achieved that, their only real influence on policy will be the, the shape of the, the, the composition of the balance sheet and um, the extent that they allow um, treasuries or mortgage-backed securities to wind off and in what ratio. And I think um, that will be you know, one, the Fed looking at its objectives and how is it doing in terms of inflation and labor, and then two, you know, what is the shape of the yield curve and what are they what are they trying to achieve there? So I think that that'll add a, a, an interesting level of complexity. We'll go into these Fed meetings talking more about the balance sheet than we are about you know the actual Fed funds rate itself. Tim, to what extent is this just sort of holding your finger up in the air and guessing where the balance sheet will end and where it should end? And to what extent is there actually a methodology for thinking about this? How do we get to two trillion, two and a half well, trillion? I mean, there's a couple of ways you can think about it. The only rational methodology that I can apply is what's the Fed's normal share of the Treasury market. And over time, that's around 14 or 15 percent or so. So, you know, by the time it gets back there, it'll be, you know, about two and a half trillion. So that's, that's one kind of dead reckoning way of doing it. Now, you might think, well, how can that be if, we've, if, they've, if they've gone from 895 billion to four and a half trillion? Um, it's because there was so much more issuance in this cycle to, to you know, when we had $1.4 trillion budget deficits, Treasury was issuing a lot of this stuff. So the, the although the Fed was buying a lot, the, the overall share grew a lot in that time. So yeah. um, do you have to make adjustments for that, for the fact that there's been a lot more issuance? I don't know. If we're going to be running trillion-dollar budget deficits going forward, maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's kind of the, the new speed limit for the rate of issuance. And on that basis, um, $2 trillion is a, a rational number. It's really interesting that the biggest cries for, uh, to stop for the, uh, the balance sheet process to slow down is coming from abroad, Tim. It's coming from international. It's coming from emerging market central bank governors. I don't hear much domestically. What's the domestic rationale to slow down? Well, you know, I mean, when you look at who's been buying this stuff, um, you know, the the foreign central banks had a much bigger interest in this stuff earlier in this cycle. So when, you know, the sovereign debt crisis was at its high watermark back in, you know, 2010 and 2011, when there was worries about China slowing down in 2013 and 2014, more recently, though, um, there hasn't been as much foreign appetite for a lot of this issuance. And um, I think that, that, that contributes at least at the margin to some of that. I, well, I guess that to follow on with John's question, there's a question of how good the U.S. economy is right now. Are we seeing a peak uh, or are we seeing just momentum building? And I'd love your sense just based on the economic data that we've seen recently. 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're certainly closer to the end than we are to the beginning of the cycle. There's no doubt about that. But um, I think when the Fed looks at this, they're, they're not thinking so much of where we are in the economic cycle. Of course, they have to consider that. But I think their, their primary thing is to look at um, inflation and the jobs market. And the job market, by any reckoning, is, is white hot right now. I mean, when you look at um, not just the low unemployment rate, but, you know, uh, quits being near all-time highs, um, the uh, initial jobless claims, four-week moving average that hitting levels not seen since the 1960s. So um, the labor market's certainly there. And the inflation side of things is, you know, for you know, nine years in this expansion, we couldn't buy 2% inflation, and we're kind of there now. So um, is it late in the cycle? Most assuredly, it is. But from the Fed's perspective, its, it's mandates is it's, it's firing right on line with where it needs to be. Hey, Tim, great to catch up with you ahead of Jackson Hole Likewise. over in Wyoming. Tim Quinlan, Wells Fargo Security Senior Economist, joining us right here on Bloomberg Surveillance. A ton of housing data coming through, sort of bleeding through, drip feeding us through the week on the update of the, the U.S. housing sector. John, I, I think that the housing market has not gotten quite enough attention, especially because home builders uh, as a sector are down nearly 18% so far this year. And this comes as there's broad strength across the board in almost every other sector. Um, so there's a big question, you know, how healthy is the U.S. housing market? And uh, maybe someone can answer that. Maybe that person is Ken Simonson. Uh, he is Associated General Contractors Chief Economist. He also is a uh, survey analyst for the National Association for Business Economics. Ken, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with the housing market. And I was struck by the University of Michigan survey uh, that came out last week that showed the smallest proportion of people that they talked to saying that it was a good time to buy a home since 2008. What do you make of that? Well, it's a pretty striking data point. I'm never confident, though, that the confidence surveys capture what people are actually going to do. They may say it's not a good time, but it takes a fairly small percentage of people to actually go out and buy to move the needle on uh, home sales. So uh, I'm more interested in seeing what those hard data indicate about what's happened in the latest month. So what do you expect this Wednesday and this Friday? Well, again, uh, that's a series that's quite volatile, but um, I think the uh, trend has been pretty flat so far. Clearly, people are uh, having a hard time find, finding houses at the right price point. And uh, then there's also a lot of reluctance among uh, millennials in particular to commit. I know people have been saying for years, oh, uh, as the millennials get older, they're going to do the same thing as their parents did. Uh, surveys about intentions to buy at some point uh, indicate that. And yet uh, people are still waiting longer to get married, longer to have kids. They're having fewer kids. And even when they're doing, uh, having those kids, uh, many of them now are in uh, cities or older suburbs where uh, they find the school systems have adequate choices and they're not fleeing to uh, ever further out suburbs. So, so I think we're going to see very slow growth in single-family home growing, home buying. What's been interesting to me is that uh, the multifamily that appeared to have been overbuilt for a while is actually showing some strength. John, do you like that? Millennials just have commitment problems. Yeah. 
Yeah. What are you trying to say? No, I'm just saying that that's uh, maybe <laughs> that's what's driving. You, you the, tr- you're trying to you're trying to personalize the segment. <laughs> All right. So, Ken, I, I'm not going to get into commitment problems, but you have to wonder how much this has to do with sort of uh, oh, millennials these days, and how much this has to do with higher interest rates and the fact that price uh, that prices of homes have gotten so high. And I guess I'm just wondering: are we are we reaching a tipping point? Because you have seen declines in a lot of major markets, and are you seeing uh, sort of ongoing dips, sort of foretelling a, a larger and longer slowdown in the U.S. housing market? Well, again, it's interesting. I think there was widespread assumption with the uh, Fed uh, ratcheting up short-term rates and uh, that the, the long-term rates would also move up steadily. But instead, we've seen that uh, 30-year and the 15-year mortgage rates uh, really uh, fluctuate around pretty moderate levels. So, uh, I don't think uh, people are being panicked into going out and buying now before interest rates uh, get much higher. I think people may think, uh, yes, there uh, is going to be a long-term upward trend, uh, but I-, I think that may have more effect on those who have houses available to sell. They're saying, wait a minute, if I sell and want to buy another one, I'm going to be trading in a super low mortgage for one that's higher. People who haven't yet bought they're saying, I can afford to wait a while longer. Interest rates are not shooting through the roof. All right. So, Ken, I want to shift gears a little bit because aside from wearing a housing hat, you also are one of the uh, survey analysts for this National Association for Business Economic Study. And I'm wondering, uh, you were looking at tariffs, right? Yes. And uh, this was a survey of 251 members of the National Association for Business Economics, the professional organization for folks who use economics in the workplace. I guess you guys should be members, too. All right. That was a good pitch. What'd you find real quick? (laughs) Uh, That uh, overwhelmingly, they believe that uh, tariffs are harmful uh, to the economy, even if they uh, may do some short-term good, that uh, they're likely to do more harm than good. Well, it's, it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, considering the fact that uh, right now we're seeing that across the board. And of course, this morning we saw that Maersk, uh, the biggest shipping company in the world, that the CEO was saying that he expects the uh, trade, uh, the, the trade potential tensions having a bigger effect on the U.S. than the rest of the world. Ken Simonson, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, a pleasure speaking with you about the housing market and also the fact that uh, economists think that tariffs are bad. Ken Simonson is Associated General Contractors Chief Economist. We've had a viewer question coming through the Bloomberg Terminal. We love questions from you guys. We love hearing from you. So just log on to the Bloomberg Terminal, go on to GTV Go, and then click a, well, click underneath the video screen. So this is another question from Minal Patel. Uh, it says, sanctions risk facing Russia have resurfaced again. And so given, Minal, that you said you probably like uh, ruble longer term, what are the chances of it, more sanctions hurting the economy there? Yeah, I mean, I think, and that's an important question because obviously we like the fundamentals of Russia and the economic story there. But as we've seen with other countries, sanctions are now posing a risk. Um, And what's becoming concerning is that the US administration are almost using it like a policy tool in order to, ahead of sort of the the midterm elections in November, to... um, 
uh, to advance their, their um, position a little bit more. Um, and if we think about some of the sanctions and tariffs that have come through with regards to, to China and Turkey, every time these are coming through, Trump's um, approval state, uh, ratings with his base is starting to increase even further. So ahead of the midterm elections, there is always that risk and that chance that you do see those sanctions, sanctions being broadening out to other countries. Um, and Russia is one of those that poses that risk. Um, but ultimately, we're sticking to the core story of the fundamental longer-term, medium-term story with Russia. But obviously, sanctions could um, disrail, um, sort of, sort of uh, disrupt that um, story a little bit in the near term. Uh, Manal, if there's a, a, you know, geopolitics flaring up again, like we saw a couple of months ago, yeah. do you go to cash? Um, I don't think you need to necessarily go to cash. Um, I think that a lot of people would probably think that is the right place to go. But, um, you know, you do see volatility in markets. And, and ultimately, if you, if you think back to sort of um, last year, volatility has been um, a lot lower than where um, historically we would have expected it to be. So these types of things coming through are not um, um, unusual when it comes to, to how markets perform. Um, so it always pays to stay invested in markets. I don't think you should flood back into cash completely, but you might want to rebalance slightly and, and, and sort of change that balance of equity exposure or put some protection strategies in place um, regards to, with regards to your risk exposure um, but ultimately, I don't think you necessarily need to move everything into cash. Just going back to the Russia question. Yeah. I, the, the big difference between Russia and a lot of other markets, emerging markets, well, not a lot, but, but many, is that it's, it's an oil story. Yeah. And, and that's the big difference between it and Turkey. Let's come back to our previous question uh, with Crescent. I, if oil stays in those kinds of ranges, Russia's looking like a pretty... Uh, is going to benefit from that. Exactly. And, and I think uh, those fundamentals are really important, is that the, the global growth story, the baseline, is that you should see a continuation of that, and that should help to support the oil market. We should... You know, we're, we're looking at uh, an average of this year of $67 um, per barrel um, for the year, um, and that should take you to around sort of $70 for the remaining part of this year. Um, the demand and supply balance is still um, very tight, and that is supportive of oil, and that, to your point, is very good for Russia and the economy. Minal, thank you so much for joining us for the hour. Minal Patel there of JP Morgan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 